Thank you, Pastor Doug and our worship team. What a treat to have people who know how to play and honor God with their voices and their instruments. I am Pastor Jay. It is a privilege to welcome you today as we worship the Lord. If you are newer or visiting with us, and you might see three words in our lobby, our lobbies out here, follow, connect, make. You may wonder, what is that? That is our attempt to summarize the trajectory of the Christian life in three words, which is follow Jesus, very biblical word. That's crossing over the line of saving faith, where do you enter eternal life, follow Christ. Connect means being involved and getting involved in a local church. There's no such thing as being disconnected from a local church as a believer, uh, watching something or occasional attendance is not the biblical view. The biblical view is being involved, serving in, sitting under preaching, fellowshipping with, ministering to believers. And that is what we are gathered for. And then follow, connect, make is the Great Commission. Go make disciples of all nations. And that is the, that's how the process moves forward, is that those who know Christ are then to start making disciples, first in their own neighborhood, backyard, their own area, and some are sent to the ends of the earth. That's why we have our flags up here. These represent countries where we have sent workers, missionaries, to take the gospel of Christ. So when you see those words, follow, connect, make, just gives you a better idea. That is, that is what beats at our core. That is our vision. That is our heartbeat to capture what the New Testament says. Uh, I invite you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We are in a series in the book of Ecclesiastes, and as we continue, we are going to talk about a subject that everybody hates to talk about, but part of the benefit of preaching through Scripture chunk by chunk is you come to topics that you tend to avoid or you wouldn't normally take up. A number of times I've come to passages and be like, I would rather not, this is a weird chapter, I don't know what to do with it, or this is a strange chapter, or this is an unpleasant chapter, or an unpleasant paragraph. But part of expository preaching is taking the whole counsel of God. So today we come to a chapter about death. Remember, death is coming. And there's high odds, very high odds, that one year from today, there will be some sitting here right this minute who will not be alive on this planet. And this is a very important subject regardless of our age. This is not just for old people. This is for all of us because we have no idea when any of us may die. And the Pastor Doug referenced the war right now going on, uh, Russia's brutal invasion. There, I use words that are outlawed there in Russia right now. Uh, one of the first signs that you have a liar and an evil person on the throne is when they start changing all the language about what they're doing, just like the Nazis did. And you have that going on with Putin right now. You can't use the words like invasion, and, which is exactly what it is. And it's a reminder of all the death that is going on right now. A reminder that one of the countries we are focused on and are heavily invested in Hungary, at least almost 150,000 refugees have crossed over. There's a small border Hungary shares with Ukraine. And they're streaming into especially Poland and Hungary right now as you pray for them. Uh, when we think about death... Approximately 150,000 people got up this morning on this planet not knowing this would be their last day. 
That is roughly how many die every day on our planet, 150,000, who had no idea. Some will die quietly, quietly. Some will die violently. Some will die all alone. Some will die with loved ones around them. Some will die young. Some will die old, but die they will. In Ecclesiastes 9, Solomon is telling us it is very important for the living to reflect on the fact that death is coming and that's something we don't like doing. In fact, some of us won't even talk about things like life insurance and funeral plans because it's just unpleasant. But it is a subject we ignore to our own peril. And that is why it's so critical that we think occasionally on death. I appreciate the Puritans, those who sought to reform the Church of England back in the 16, 1700s. They constantly challenged large congregations. Puritans pastored large congregations, many of them did, in London and surrounding areas, and they would challenge them. It is important to reflect on the fact that death is coming. And so this morning we turn to this chapter, and we're going to see two things emphasized. One, the certainty of death, and two, the uncertainty of life. With that, let's just dive in. Certainty of death, the first ten verses. Verses one to three, let me begin with, as Solomon describes the certainty of death. So I reflected on all of this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As, as it is with the good, so with the sinful... As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. And I'm going to read the first part of verse 3. <clears throat> this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. That phrase, common destiny, <clears throat> or a same destiny, is emphasized two times there. Now, let me be clear what this is not saying. Because initially you could read that and think, oh, he's teaching everyone goes to a better place. That is not what is being said. This is not teaching a doctrine we call universalism. What's universalism? This is a doctrine that all people end up in heaven or in the same place. That is not what he's emphasizing. Verse 2 and the first part of verse 3 is emphasizing that all people share a common destiny, meaning death. That's the point. That's what he's emphasizing. That's the context. That's the grammatical, historical context in this section. In other words, Solomon's saying to us, death is the great equalizer. Regardless of your net worth, regardless of how good of a health you're in, all of us, if Christ does not return in our lifetime, are going to face death. We may face it sooner than we expected. We may face it later than we had hoped for. Uh, got the privilege this week of doing the funeral for Mary Strickfadden, 92 years old, salt of the earth saint. And I was with her a week ago before she died in the hospital, and she just, I want to go home. <laughs> I want to go home. I said, you will, Mary, in God's timing. And God took her in just less than a week. So death is the great equalizer. And yet in, in, in Western culture especially, and I find this especially true as you read history, looking at Western culture, uh, people don't like to see death, and they don't like to talk about death. But historically, as most of us probably are aware, death was a regular part of life. Seeing it up close, I guess, was even a regular part of life. I mean, that's the, more of the point. It's, it's just as common today, but we tend to 
offload it or try to stay a certain distance from it. And that is not true. And not true in a lot of cultures today. It was up close and personal. In fact, there was a, death had a protocol to it. Uh, the deathbed experience. And death had a protocol as far as it often involved family and friends and relatives and neighbors and even children. People prepared to die much more so than I think today. And it was a very important event, had kind of a ritual or liturgy about it. And speaking of preparation to die, let's talk about wills for a second. I hope you have a will if you're married and have property and especially children, but it's an important thing. But it's interesting to see how wills have changed over time. Historically, it was a custom for those who were true believers in Christ to include some kind of confession of their belief in Christ or of God. And uh, so this week I happened to be, I went on the Patrick Henry historical site and I actually read Patrick Henry's entire will. It was interesting, I picked two lines out of it. This is from November 1789, seven months before he died. Here's two lines that jumped out at me as I read Patrick Henry's will. It began with, in the name of God, amen, I, Patrick Henry of Charlotte County, at my leisure and in health, do make this my last will and testament in manner following and do write it throughout with my own hand. Then he described the distribution of his property. And to be fair, historically, he owned slaves. So he was also distributing his slaves and his inheritance as well. But he gets to the end of the distribution of his property and he includes this. This is all the inheritance I give to my dear family, the religion of Christ. I can give them as an inheritance which alone will make them rich indeed. And so the average will today, in fact, Becky and I were talking about this this morning. We had a will done in the last two years and realized uh, our will is completely secularized in the sense that all it describes is the distribution of our property. Uh, there's an interesting book by a French historian, Philippe Ayres, called Western Attitudes Toward Death from Middle Ages to Present. And he describes the secularization of the will in Western culture over the last couple hundred years. And he wrote this. He said, the pious clauses... The choice of the tomb, the funding of religious services, and the giving of alms have all disappeared from the will. The will has been reduced to the document we find today, a legal act distributing this, the estate, small and large. The will has largely become completely secularized. And so Solomon here is doing the opposite in the sense of reminding us we need to focus on death and not completely sanitize it and remove it. That brings us to the second part of verse 3. The Holy Spirit speaking through Solomon. And we believe the Holy Spirit inspired Ecclesiastes as much as any other book. Issues a powerful reminder about what's wrong with the human race. So not only are we given a reminder about death, we're given a reminder about the danger we have who are living and the infection, the spiritual infection inside us. In verse 3, the second part, the hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil. There's an interesting phrase. And there is madness in their hearts while they live. The hearts of people are full of evil. Aren't you glad you came out this morning? This is just full of cheer. <laughs> but again, that's the benefit of walking through Scripture making sure we read the good and the bad and the ugly because we have all of it in the Bible. 
And it's important that we look at all. So this verse, the second part of verse 3, is just emphasizing something the Bible emphasizes elsewhere, and that is the wickedness that dwells the human heart, all human hearts. The Bible teaches this with abundance of clarity. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Some of you know the verse, some of you don't. But Jeremiah the prophet said, through speaking through the Holy Spirit, for the heart is deceitful, deceitful above all things. You don't have to work with people very long to know that and know that about your own heart. Matthew 15, Jesus said this, for out of the heart, here's Jesus the gentle and lowly shepherd. Matthew 15, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murderers, murders, adulteries, and blasphemies. That's Jesus' uh, description of your heart and my heart. And that's why the Bible says, hear this, folks, ladies and gentlemen, young people, hear this. That is why we desperately need a Savior. We don't just go to church to get inspirational goodies to help make us a better person so we can go home and have a better week. The redeemed gather to celebrate that they have a Savior. And that without that Savior, they would perish under judgment and wrath and go to hell. That is why we need a Savior. The Bible says in Isaiah 59, 2, your sins have separated you from God. That includes me. That's all of us. The Bible says there is no one righteous, quoting Psalms. This is Paul quoting Psalms. No one righteous. Not even one. And then he goes on and he actually says there's no one who seeks God. Interesting that St. Thomas Aquinas, he said when people say they're seeking God, he said they're not. They're seeking the benefits of God. They want peace of mind. They want answered prayer. They want this. They want that. They want the benefits that God offers, but they do not want the Holy One of Israel. I remember in the Old Testament, one of the kings who rebuked a prophet and the king, wicked king said, stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Stop it. <laughs> we, don't wanna, we don't want that. The Bible says no one seeks God. Some of you know the name Martin Luther, the German reformer who lived 500 years ago in Germany, who wrote so much, preached so much, helped revive the gospel and help lead the Reformation along with John Calvin and Erwig Zwingli and John Knox and a number of others. Martin Luther's favorite book, according to himself, of all the things he wrote, Bondage of the Will, which is in our library, in our church library, that Pastor Tim does such a good job stocking. Martin Luther made a comment based on Romans chapter 3, where no one seeks God, <clears throat> and he says this, to say that man does not seek God is the same thing as saying man cannot seek God. So you see, free will does not exist. And nothing good or upright is left in man. For he is declared to be unrighteous, ignorant of God, and a despiser of God. That is the bad news. But you cannot know the gospel until you know the bad news. That we are slaves to sin, dead in sin, unable to seek God. And that unless God awakens his elect, they're not going to come to him. But the gospel, meaning good news, Greek word meaning good news, 
is that God has still made a way for righteous, I mean, for unrighteous sinners to be righteous, to forgive them, to restore them, and to reconcile them <clears throat> to God. In Mark's gospel, Jesus announced it very clearly. Right in Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 15, it says, Jesus came preaching, and he said, repent and believe the good news, the euangelion, the gospel. There's how you go to heaven. Here's how Paul made it just as clear in Romans chapter 10. So if you're sitting out there going, well, then how do I get right with God? Paul, here, listen to what Paul says right here. This is available to anybody who is alive and breathing this morning. Whatever your spiritual status, if you don't know God, if you're not sure, here's the apostle Paul. Here is God reaching out to you with the gospel. Here it is. If you will declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will, what? Be saved. Let me read it one more time. If you will declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the gospel, the good news. That brings us back to chapter 9, verses 4 to 6. <clears throat> I'm going to read, starting at verse 4. <clears throat> Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. Interesting phrase. <clears throat> For the living know that they will die. At least they're aware of it. They don't like to think about it. But the dead know nothing. They have no further reward. Even their name is forgotten. Their love their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Note what Solomon reminds us of in 5b, the second part of, last part of verse 5. Their name is forgotten. You will be quickly forgotten. There's another cheery reminder this morning. <laughs> I will be quickly forgotten. Very few people are remembered. A hundred years beyond their death. If you have any doubt, can you name off the top of your head your great-grandparents on both sides? And if you think, oh yeah, I can name a couple of them, how about your great-great, which probably li lived less than 100 to 130 years ago? Now, I was going to pick famous people. Can you name so-and-so? And then I thought, no, no, they're going to pull their phones out and Google and not listen to the sermon. <laughs> I was going to ask, like, who was the MVP in 1932 for the American League? Based, and I thought, no, some smart aleck's going to look it up on the phone, shout it out. But your great-great-grandparents aren't on your phone, probably, so I thought, I'm going, to, I'm going to go safe with that. So, But think, I mean, the point, can you name your great-grandparents on both sides? Can you, if, you, if you can get a couple of them, and I sat at my desk this week trying, and I, I think I got all four of them, but it took me a while. Can you go back beyond that? And the answer is no. Why? Because we are quickly forgotten. Death is coming. Judgment is coming. The, right here it says our hearts are full of evil. So it doesn't just say we're going to die. We're going to die and our hearts are full of evil. We're in trouble unless something happens. That's Solomon. That's the gospel according to Solomon. He's preaching the same gospel that Abraham preached, same gospel David preached, same gospel that Jeremiah preached, same gospel Jesus preached, same gospel Paul preached. This is the gospel. Now, before we leave this point, 
on the certainty of death and go to the uncertainty of life. I want to spend just a few minutes because my own father died a couple months ago, the closest person I've lost to death. And then we just did a funeral this week. And so I want to talk for a few minutes about one of the most common questions that I keep getting and a lot of pastors get, and it is this. What happens one minute after you die? What happens immediately after death? When you've taken your last breath, what happens? You ever wonder that? It's just about, it's like the universal question that we are curious about. So I want to talk about for just a few minutes, Bible scholars call this immediate state, the interme- they, they generally, it's not a biblical term, but they usually refer, refer to it as the immediate or intermediate condition or the intermediate state. It's not a biblical term, but it's not a bad term. And, and it's the, we call it the intermediate state on purpose because it's the time between your death and the day of judgment, which is a future event. And so there's this in-between, there's another phrase they sometimes use, this in-between time. What happens, Erwin Lutzer has a great book out, One Minute After Death, what happens one minute after you die until that future judgment? Inquiring minds want to know. And so here, let me say, first of all, you need to make a distinction between the intermediate state and the final state. There, there are two things. I've been, my own mom lately, I've been sharing that with her. She's been talking about my dad and you know, where is he at the moment. And I said, well, mom, first thing you got to remember, there's the intermediate state and then there's the final state. They're, those are not the same. So first of all, let me give you the three most common false beliefs about this intermediate period, the in-between state. The three most common false beliefs about this in-between time. They are, in no particular order, one, reincarnation. That somehow, in some way, you come back in another life form. There's the Western version of reincarnation where you can only come back as another person. Then there's the actual Hindu doctrine of reincarnation, which is actually called transmigration, which you can actually come back. This is the older version. This is Orthodox Hinduism, that you can come back in any life form. The Western version is you only come back as a person, but the Hindu version is you come back in any form. That is a completely false belief and denied by Scripture emphatically. The second most common error, false belief about the intermediate state, is purgatory. The Bible nowhere teaches doctrine of purgatory, anywhere in the canonical Scriptures. It is a man-made doctrine where you go to have further purification. It undermines the atonement of Christ, that he finished it when he said, it is finished. He meant, it is finished. The redeemed are redeemed. That's it. Done. And then the third most common misbelief, false belief about the intermediate state is universalism, which I've already mentioned, and that is that everyone dies, and then everyone goes to heaven. That's it. In fact, when we go to funerals, let me just go off here on a small tangent. My wife often is holding my arm and squeezing it because I start getting agitated when I go to funerals at some churches. The two most common things I hear at funerals that just are flatly unbiblical. One, so-and-so was united with Christ in their baptism as a baby. That is not true. That is not true. The Bible never teaches your... Baptism is for those who are saved. It's a public declaration of your faith in Christ. It's a command. 
That's why we're doing a baptism service next month. If you're born again and you've not gone underwater and declared your faith publicly, you're in sin and you need to. That's, I mean, it's the first command given to any believer to do. That's the first thing I hear. But then you also hear at a funeral, so-and-so's gone to a better place. Sometimes I'm looking at the scoundrel up front thinking, uh, I'm not so sure. They've gone. They've gone on to some place, but it's not always, I mean, we laugh, but it's not, it's not, we can't just say they've gone to a better place. If they knew Christ, yes, that's not true if they didn't know Christ. So what happens one minute after death? I did my best this week to, here's four things we know for certain from the Bible. There's a lot of speculation, but I tried to narrow this down to, okay, what do we know with absolute rock solid confidence about the intermediate state. And let me say that most of the focus in the Bible is on the final state, not the intermediate state. But there is information given about the intermediate state, four things we know for certain. Number one, we are fully conscious after death. Fully conscious after death. In Luke 23, 43, Jesus said to the thief who repented and was dying on the cross, he said to him, the one who repented, not the one who didn't repent, but the one who repented next to him, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. And there's other passages that give strong indication. We're fully conscious after death. There's no time of soul sleep or falling asleep or unconsciousness. So from the moment you're dead until the day of judgment, whatever that is, 10 years, 1,000 years, you're fully conscious after death. Everyone, the righteous and the wicked. Secondly, we will not have our bodies our physical bodies until the day of resurrection, until the final resurrection. Between your death and the day of judgment, we are in a, here's another non-biblical phrase or word, a disembodied state. That's the best way to phrase it. We're fully conscious but separated from our bodies. So when you do look at someone in a casket and say, well, that's not them, well, that's not half of them, but the body is going to be resurrected again. We're not resurrected spirits forever. We are resurrected bodies. We're going to be on a new earth. That's the final state. So we know we're fully conscious the moment we die, righteous or not. And secondly, we know we are separated from our bodies. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but we're fully aware, we're fully alert, and we're separated from our bodies. In 2 Corinthians 5, 8 Paul wrote at one point, I'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's what he's referring to. And you can think of some who even after the grave, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration speaking with Moses and Elijah, they were disembodied. They were there, their spirit form. Or when Saul called up Samuel in a seance that he was forbidden to do, back in the Old Testament, Samuel actually, we're told, actually appeared. Third thing we know Immediately after death, you do go to either a place called paradise, Abraham's bosom, if you're righteous, or you go to a place of temporary torment. Luke 16, you have an evil man who died and went to a place of torment, and he was unable to escape. He could not cross over. That was very clear. And then you have a righteous man in Luke 16, Lazarus, who went to the presence of the Lord. So, in other words, not everyone goes to a better place, only those who know Christ. According to the Bible, many who die in their disembodied state, 
fully conscious, will go to a terrifying place after death if they don't know Christ. And the fourth truth, sometime in the future, there will be a resurrection of every single person who's ever lived in bodily form. The word resurrection in the New Testament always applies to the soma. That's the Greek word for physical body. Body. Resurrection applies not to the soul, not to a spirit, which I think are the same, but it applies to the body. Isaiah 26, 19. And this is taught in the Old Testament. Resurrection of the body. But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise again. The longest passage on physical resurrection, not only of Jesus, but ours, is 1 Corinthians 15. And the Bible here then is talking about the future state. And those that are resurrected unto life will spend eternity on a new earth, physical. Those resurrected unto judgment will spend eternity, and the Bible calls lake of fire, under eternal judgment. Revelation 20, verse 12, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And anyone's name not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That's Revelation 20, verse 12. So we know we're fully conscious immediately after death. We know we don't have our bodies until the final resurrection. We know that immediately after death, we go to either the presence of Christ or to a place of torment before the final state. And we know sometime in the future there will be a general resurrection of all people before the day of judgment. All people will have their bodies. And then they will eventually go to their final state, either the new heaven, new earth, or the lake of fire. That is as concise as I can make it, and it's a very important distinction to offer because there is comfort there for those who've died and gone to be with Christ. That brings us to verses 11 to 18, which is the uncertainty of life. I've seen something else under the sun, verse 11. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong. This is reminding us that things don't always go as they seem. Nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. And then here's just going to give us an analogy. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Look at verses 11 and 12 there for a minute. Some of you know that this was originally written in Hebrew. It wasn't written in English or Greek. It was written in Hebrew. In the Hebrew text in verse 11 and 12... The word no appears five times in those two verses. And in all five of these instances, it's pushed to the front of the phrase for emphasis. You, you can do this in Hebrew. So the Hebrew text reads a little bit more like this. Not to the swift is the race. Not to the strong warrior is the winning of the battle. Not to the wise is the getting of bread. Not to the intelligence is true wealth. Not to the skillful comes favor and power. Now, it's not generally translated that way because that's not good English. But it is important to understand that you can emphasize things. You know, back then they didn't have word processors and italics and bold print and all this. So there was, you, you emphasize things in a different way. You either, one way was to repeat a word two or three times, 
Or another way was to move something like a word, prominent word like that and move it towards the front of the phrase. And here you have five times right in a row the emphasis. And the, the, the emphasis is on the uncertainty of life. It doesn't always go as, as, as we assume. Solomon is reminding us that, and something he's reminding us throughout the, the book of Ecclesiastes is that life often goes very differently than you would expect. Completely different. And the word he's used over and over, he uses 38 times in the book, Hebrew word hevel. Hevel. Hevel can mean, it is really two sides to it. Hevel means Straight out translation, temporary or brief or mist or vapor or smoke, puff of smoke. It's emphasizing the briefness of something. But Hevel also points to the fact and is used to emphasize that life is an enigma. That life is a puzzle. It's a paradox. It often is completely different than you would expect. So often it appears to be one thing going one way. And we're certain that this is the direction. And often, suddenly, everything changes. And curveballs start coming. And then it, nothing is what we expected. Some of us are in that right this minute. I mean, we thought life was going here, and all of a sudden it's shifted and it's gone there, and all of a sudden take another turn and gone over here. That brings us to the verses 13 to 18. In these last verses, Solomon is giving us a brief parable. Interesting little parable here. And the, the point of the parable, it's about a powerful king attacked a small city, he is emphasizing the benefits of wisdom. That's the point of the parable. So you have a powerful king, verses 13 to 18, who attacks a small city, and against all odds, a poor wise man somehow delivers the city, and then he's promptly forgotten. But the, so Solomon's point is wisdom is so powerful, though, that even the quiet words of a wise man are more effective than the rantings of a foolish king who just tries to ram through his foolish will with sheer force. Meaning, wisdom is better than the weapons of war. That's his point in verses 13 to 18. Becky and I have been praying. I hope some of you have been praying, I assume, for the Ukrainian-Russian thing. But we're praying that that would be true there. That wisdom would prevail, that the believers in Ukraine, of which there are many, and that God's mercy would be on the Ukraine. And that the, the wisdom there would prevail over the stronger weapons of war from Russia. All right, that leads to our summons this morning. And our summons, simply this. I wanna, I wanna, and I want to craft our summons in two questions in a, in, a, in a chapter like this. And this, beloved, this is, this is not an easy chapter. Let's be honest. This is a, this is a chapter that's uh, kind of like the mirror when you first get out of bed. You, like, you look in it and go, ugh, you know, it's just, it's not the most attractive thing. This is that kind of chapter. I mean, we got the, the, the depravity and evil emphasized in our hearts and, and, and nothing is like it seems and death is coming and who knows when you're going to die. And it, I mean, it's, it's, but this is the word of God and we need these chapters. We need these kinds of reminders. I need them. So here's two questions coming out this morning. Of this, and this is this is very important. Question number one has to be asked: Are you ready to meet God? And I'm asking that of all of us here this morning. Have you been born again? Notice what I didn't ask. I didn't ask: Do you go to church every week, or have you been baptized? 
Are you religious? Did you grow up Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, or whatever? I didn't ask any of that. The biblical question, are you born again? And that's something that every single person needs to ask occasionally of themselves. Jesus said it this way. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So in other words, being a Christian is far more than just trying to follow the Ten Commandments and occasionally drop in and go to church. That is not what being a Christian is about. The gospel is about experiencing a radical rebirth, spiritual rebirth, and being transformed from the inside out. That is what spiritual rebirth is all about. Paul puts it this way in a very famous verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone's in Christ, meaning if anyone's truly been saved, if, if, you, could just, you could put that in there. That's what he's saying. If you've been born again, you are a new creation. That is speaking of this transformation that has occurred in somebody. The old has passed away. So that's the question this morning. Have you experienced that radical spiritual rebirth? That's what the gospel is aiming at. Not being religious, not dropping into church to get some inspirational goodies occasionally to help you be a little bit of a better citizen. That is not the gospel. The gospel is about a radical encounter with the living God in which you are utterly reborn and transformed from the inside out. That leads to the second and last question this morning. Is there evidence in your life that you are a new creation? Paul's very clear about that. He says we need to examine ourselves to make sure we're in the faith. I want to end this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I invite you to turn to your New Testament. I think this is one of the clearest passages where Paul gives us a glimpse of what a transformed heart looks like. Second, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we will end here. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Paul is giving us, in these few verses here, a glimpse of what a transformed, born-again, regenerate person looks like from the inside out. And here's what they look like. Here is how they're described. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Here he's talking about the Christian life. Run in such a way as to get the prize. The prize here is salvation. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run, meaning the Christian life, like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No. I strike a blow to my own body and make it my slave so after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Again, the prize here is salvation. Don't miss what Paul is saying here. He's saying something very, very important. As you look at these verses, he's telling us that the race of life has eternal consequences. You say, well, what, mean what? Not because salvation is earned by the way we run. Hear that. He's not, he's not saying that. He's not saying salvation is earned by the way he, we run. He is saying salvation is verified by the way we run. That's a big difference. 
The one's religion, the other's gospel. Salvation's not earned by how we run the race, it's verified by how we run the race. The race of life has eternal consequences, not because we're saved by good works, we're not, but because Christ has saved a dead sinner to serve the living and true God. That's what it means to be born again. In other words, Jesus came to make committed followers who were all in, not just to gather a bunch of admirers or fans. Some time ago, I quoted Søren Kierkegaard, the Danish theologian, thinker, and philosopher. I'm going to quote him again this morning because he nails it. He just nails it, the difference between a committed follower and an admirer. The one is born again, the other is not. This comes from his provocations, writings of Kierkegaard. Quote, this is word gold. The difference between an, admi an, an admirer and a follower still remains, no matter where you are. The admirer never makes any true sacrifices. He plays it safe. Though in words, phrases, and songs, he is inexhaustible about how highly he prizes Christ, but he renounces nothing and gives up nothing. Christ claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. His, his, meaning Christ, his whole life on earth from beginning to end was destined solely to have followers and to make admirers impossible. So I close with Matthew 7, 13. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many, many will enter through that gate. Once again, we are having a baptism service next month. The very first command given to anybody who is born again. And if you have not yet been baptized underwater as a sign of your faith and a public testimony to Christ, we would love to have the honor to baptize you next month. And next hour, right? Next hour, Reverend Tim Bruns, right here, in our second row right here, will be teaching that class in just a bit. And it's a great place to learn more about baptism. And we would love to have the honor to do that. Father, thank you for the pen of Solomon. And even a chapter that we would not normally gravitate to, but it's in the Word of God, and it's just as inspired as Psalm 23 or Ephesians 1, the passages we all love. And we need Ecclesiastes 9. As we stand to sing, and as we have our benediction, May we be different people. And I pray you would summon some here from the dead today to eternal life. And for those of us who know Christ here today, God, may we be more energized and excited about what lies ahead because the day of our death will be better than the day we were born. And we pray this in Jesus' name.